It's the week after Thanksgiving here in the United States, a time of plenty, of feasts. Despite this fall's market famine, well, we have a feast of our own this week. It's your mailbag, and in keeping with our theme of abundance, I'm going for an all-time podcast record of 11 separate mailbag items. That's right, I can see my producer Rick Engdahl's eyebrows go up ever so slightly, maybe slightly skeptically, that we can, in fact, get through this in an hour or less. We're going to be featuring five superstar guests. We're going to be talking about how to approach market dips, how to research private companies, the Motley Fool mutual funds, how to become a true fool, and, of course, the Gardner-Kretzmann continuum will be revisited, and a lot more. Yep, we're pulling out all the stops in this festive season of mailbag abundance on this week's Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. Thanks to Harry's for supporting Rule Breaker Investing. Guys can be hard to shop for, but Harry's is the perfect gift. He doesn't need another wallet or more socks this year, does he, right? Get your holiday shopping done early. Free shipping ends on December 12th, so act now. Go to harrys.com fool to get $5 off a shave set while supplies last. That's harrys.com fool. And thanks to Slack for supporting Rule Breaker Investing. Slack is a collaboration hub for work that makes sure the right people on your team are always in the loop and key information is always at their fingertips. Learn more at slack.com. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Well, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. It is the final Wednesday of the month. It is time for mailbag. I've said we're going to go through 11 items, so I'm not going to waste a lot of time up front. I want to get right into it. Mailbag, it's your opportunity to write me and my producer Rick and our team here and ask questions or make points or tell stories. And we'll be doing some of all of that this particular week of Rule Breaker Investing, as indeed we do every time it's the last week of the month. So let's kick it off. Rule Breaker mailbag item number one. This one comes from Robert Trapp. Robert wrote this nice note. He said, Hi, David. Your recent podcast about how to begin investing has valuable lessons, even for us, quotes, old-timers. The themes to start early in your life, if possible, and to attain the perspective of a long time horizon were illustrated effectively by you and your three guests, Fools Jason, Matt, and David. Robert goes on, When I first joined as a junior faculty member at a medical school 39 years ago, one of the valuable bits of advice given to me by one of the senior faculty was to choose an investment periodical and read it regularly to begin the process of learning. I learned the concept of dollar-cost averaging with a monthly investment into a mutual fund. My burgeoning interest in investing in individual stocks was reinforced when I discovered The Motley Fool in the mid-1990s and gleaned valuable lessons from the stories about companies recommended for investment contained in the newsletters. I now have eight grandchildren, ranging in age from one year to 13 years old. I want to begin teaching them about investing. I'm thinking that a good way to begin is to set up custodial accounts with the brokerage firm I use, which happens to be Schwab. What do you and your panel of fools think? Do I make all of their individual stock holdings identical? Shall I work with the older children to help them choose their own portfolios? How do I give stocks to them? What are the tax implications of custodial accounts for minor children? Thank you for all you do in the name of Foolish Learning, signed Robert Trapp. Well, Robert, this was a great one to lead off on because, yes, we did at the start of this month to Get Started Investing, Part 2 of 2. So, that's tie a bow around that. That's a full series of two podcasts that I really believe, I would hope, you could refer anyone to and say, hey, listen to Get Started Investing, Parts 1 and 2 on Rule Breaker Investing, and that should get anybody started investing. But you've asked a more nuanced and important question as well. You've asked, well, what about when you're trying to get kids started investing. And I think we should speak to that. So, I'm looking ahead at the schedule, and I see the very first episode of 2019. It's going to be one slash one. Yep, we'll be publishing on New Year's Day. And I'm going to make that Get Your Kids Started Investing. I'm going to bring back some of my panel, and we're going to dedicate a full episode to getting kids started investing, because I totally agree about the importance of that, and that wasn't quite the point of our previous series, and I think it's so important. And what a great way to start 2019. So thanks, Robert, for writing in and circle your calendar, fools. One slash one slash nineteen. Get your kids started investing foolishly. Rule breaker mailbag item number two. This one comes from Mahmoud from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. He writes, Hi David. Thanks for answering my previous question on when to add to your winners. I was listening to a recent RBI podcast. 
the one entitled 200 Stock Advisor Picks Later. And you were talking about handicaps that you and Tom put on yourself with Stock Advisor. For example, picking two stocks a month, having a set date to announce these picks, regardless of how the market or the stock price is doing, etc. And this got me thinking, Mahmoud says, do you think Stock Advisor would have performed better without these handicaps? I believe you said Stock Advisor performed better than many hedge funds because of these so-called handicaps. So, my question is, what kind of handicaps should investors put on themselves to do better? Perhaps not allowing themselves to sell during a correction, Mahmoud suggests. He puts that word in quotes and immediately writes, sorry, I know you hate that term. And you're right. I've covered that on other podcasts. I never use the word correction. It's almost always used by people to describe a market drop, and that doesn't sound correct to me. If anybody looks at a graph of the Dow Jones Industrial Average over the last century, you'll see what's correct is that the market goes up over time. So, corrections, I think, are misnamed, but you already knew that, Mahmoud. You go on, or maybe forcing themselves to add to a winner on a specific day of every month. So, keep up the great work. He says, thank you and your team for everything you do. P.S. I actually live in New York, but that's less exciting than having a listener from Jeddah and I am from Jeddah, signed Mahmoud Amin. And thank you very much for writing in, Mahmoud. Now, I think there are three handicaps that I want to speak to that I would recommend that you handicap yourself with. I recommend these handicaps for all investors. The first one is I'm going to handicap you and me, and we do this in Stock Advisor and indeed the whole Motley Fool business. I'm going to handicap you with making a lifetime commitment to being an investor. So, the handicap there is that we're going to be basically keeping our money in the stock market the rest of our lives. At a certain point, as we near retirement, you might start pulling some back out. And no doubt, a lot of our listeners have fixed income or real estate, other things besides the stock market. But handicap number one that we operate with every day here at The Motley Fool, we're in our 26th year of enjoying this handicap, is that we are all lifetime committed to the stock market and to investing. And a lot of people don't, right? They jump in, jump out. So we're handicapping ourselves against them. Number two, I think that that regular investing, as you mentioned, we pick one stock, each brother, every month in Stock Advisor, and our other services act similarly. And so we're handicapping ourselves by not saying, well, we're going to buy three stocks that month, and then this other two months, the market looks high, so we won't buy any stocks. We're not even going to play that game. We're simply going to regularly come in and say, once or twice a month, a lot of us with jobs are getting a paycheck twice a month, so maybe twice a month, you're going to invest that money. And it doesn't matter whether you think the market is high or low. And by the way, quick mention that if you do think you're good at timing the market, you may well be better than I am. And so perhaps you don't have to handicap yourself this way, Mahmoud, or anybody listening. But this is something that we do at The Motley Fool, and I recommend this handicap to all. And then the third and final one is you don't always have to buy all of a position at once. So I'm going to handicap you if you're nervous about entering a stock by saying you're not allowed to buy it all at once. You can't put all the money that you'd want to put in that stock the first day. Here often at The Fool, through our best buys now and our services like Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers, we give ongoing reasons to continue purchasing winning companies over the course of time. And that handicap has indeed helped us to outperform many others. So I hope that short list was helpful, Mahmoud. Thank you for writing in from New York, but saying it was still Jeddah. We do appreciate that humor here at The Fool. And oh my gosh, is is it The Motley Fool's chief investment officer who just walked into the studio? Andy Cross, how you doing? <laughs> Hi, David. How are you? Uh, really well. Andy, you're here to join in with me for the next couple of mailbag items, but you've also been handicapped with these handicaps over the course of 20 plus years here at The Motley Fool. Do you have any other thoughts? Well, I don't, I don't consider it a real handicap, David. In fact, I think it brings much needed discipline to individual investors who, uh, if they're taught anything at all, it's about jumping in and out of stocks. Maybe investing in penny stocks, maybe investing in just the the next hot thing they think might go up or down if they're short. Um, so I think having the discipline of regularly investing, whether the market's high or low, whether we're in an election cycle, whether it's a Republican or Democratic administration, does not matter whether it's a recession or not. The discipline to investing through the all of those times when the rest of the people are focused on other things, I think, really brings a value to the way that we've helped investors invest, and I think it's a big contribution to our performance. Awesome, I agree, Andy. And so, yes, you're right. 
When we were using the word handicap here for mailbag item number two, it was generally in quotes, and we're having a little bit of fun with that. It's a really good point that Mahmoud has made, which is that we think that these handicaps would serve many others if they were similarly handicapping themselves. Okay, mailbag item number three, Andy. Let's do it. This one comes from Australia. So, Colin Anderson writes in, Dear Motley Fool team, since joining Motley Fool Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers in the U.S. and Stock Advisor and Dividend Investor here in Australia, all Motley Fool services, in the last four years I've become an educated, enriched, and entertained investor. I'm especially, he's going to keep going with the alliteration here, I'm especially wiser, wealthier, and he writes www.wellprepared. Ugh for market volatility. During the recent bumpy ride through the past few months, I've slept well, been quite relaxed, but a little sad that my liquidity didn't allow me to buy more in the dip. Mm. Now, he didn't write on the dip. I think here in America, we'd say buy on dips, this sort of thing. But this is maybe an Australian English approach here, buying in the dip. Could be. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Let's continue. Your services point me towards better companies, better investing, and a better future. Thank you for all the fantastic services. Now to my question. I used to wait until I accumulated about $5,000 before investing in any stock. That was the limit my old broker set before bumping his charges from $50, that's a commission rate, right, to 1% of the purchase price. Ouch. My new broker now charges, this is the better world we're living in now, $15 $15 flat. Still high by US standards, but better. Mm-hmm. Certainly, we agree, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, thanks to some great tips from you all, I've started to dollar cost average my entry into a new stock. I think we just talked about that regular investment, great. adding to winners. In my old style, I bought bigger chunks and often added to my weeds as I tried mm. to lower my average purchase price. I lost bigger than I would have lost in this foolish style of investing. But even with your sage advice, I've only learned the painful lessons of watering weeds this year. I've recently started small positions in Intuitive Surgical, Shopify, MongoDB, PayPal, and JD.com. I've added to Shopify and MongoDB. Now, the recent slide in the market has opened up a question. Do I buy, here it is again, Andy, in the dip? Or would I be watering my weeds again? In my specific case, for these current stocks, the ones I just mentioned, Intuitive Surgical, etc., I have confidence in these companies. The reasons for selecting them have been all caps foolish, not small f foolish. The market drop has been a vote against the broader market. I've seen nothing against the weight of these companies, but how do I recognize a dip or distinguish it from a developing weed? Yours foolishly, Colin Anderson. So, Andy, I laid a lot of scaffolding there. Colin shared where he is in his investment journey, but fundamentally, the question is this. When a stock drops that we like, how do we know whether it's just dipping and going to come back or one of those weeds that you don't want to keep watering? Well, we certainly, it's a great question, Colin, and it's just making the distinction between truly watering your weeds. And when we say weeds, we mean, I think, at least I mean, and I hope Colin means this as well, companies that have the stock prices lower. And in fact, maybe the business has deteriorated a little bit and it's a smaller part of our portfolio. So, we are dollar cost averaging our price down a little bit. A lot of people do that. A lot of people do it. But Andy, you and I know the reason we call them weeds is those are the ones that you shouldn't have done that to. That's exactly right, Don't want to water the weeds. You don't want to water the weeds. And the the other part of that saying is water your weeds and trim your flowers, you actually want to water your flowers because those are the businesses that are going to continue to hopefully win in in life and support um, the, the great things they are doing around the world. And also, that is good for shareholders. So, um, supporting those businesses and investing your capital, your hard-earned capital, Colin, into the businesses that are doing well. Now, to your question. The difference between watering weeds and watering businesses like uh, intuitive Surgical and Shopify that have gone down, that have pulled back. The first thing I would say is that has the market pulled back in general. So is whatever general market index you look at, and you certainly look at the last couple months, the S and P 500, the most general uh, market followed here in the U.S. Um, uh, different, obviously, around the world and different in, in, in Australia, the ASX sure. 200, whatever it might be. The general market has that pulled back as well, and have my stocks pulled back with that. So first of all, that's the first. How is your business compared uh, your stock performance right. against so the general market? If the whole market's selling off. And your stocks with it, that probably doesn't indicate they're weeds. Not by itself, it certainly does right, not. Right, the whole market sold off. That's right, exactly. So that's the first thing. 
Second thing is then look at the performance of your businesses. Certainly go in and just see. You can go into the themotleyfool.com, fool.com uh, over in Australia, and, 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 and pull up a ticker to see if the business continues to grow. If the business seems to be doing con- continuing to do well as Intuitive Surgical is, as Shopify is doing, as so many of our businesses continue to do, then I would see that as an opportunity to add on that uh, weakness and price, but hopefully you're adding on the strength of the business, and that's the difference. Awesome. Colin, I hope that was helpful. And let's go to mailbag item number four. This one, a horse of a different color. This comes from Brett Wham, writing in from Flagstaff, Arizona. And you just, Andy, you just got to love the last name, the surname Wham. Love that. I just Wham. love that. That is fantastic. I wish I were David yeah. Wham. And you <laughs> so should be I, Andy, I Wham. Andy Wham. I we would can be all much, be the Wham brothers. I would be much cooler if I was a Wham brother. Well, Brett is, in fact, a Wham bro. So let's kick it off. Hello, David. I'm new to investing in anything outside of a retirement account. I've recently discovered the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. I've become more interested in learning about investing in stocks and plan to start with some, quotes fun money, as my wife and I are in our 30s and have been fortunate enough to max out our 401ks and Roth IRAs for a few years now. We have no debt and look forward to an early retirement sometime in our 50s. I'm not a Rule Breakers member yet, since I'm starting out pretty small. Don't want investment fees to eat too much in my capital just yet. Dropping hints to my wife for an early Christmas membership gift. (laughs) Our gifts are generally romantic like that. Brett confides. All right. I enjoy reading full articles, listening to your podcast, as it's in line with a lot of my investment beliefs, such as investing in a business that you know and for the long term. As I try and do research on companies I'd like to invest in, I'm finding, Brett writes, that they're, many of them, privately held. Is there a good resource out there to compile and track these privately held companies to know when they might have an IPO. Brett goes on a little bit more, but he's basically saying he's keeping a list of private companies. It becomes harder to know if an IPO is coming for any of them. He Googles some of these, sometimes quite frequently, to see if they might be coming public. This is a guy who's wondering, with his Robinhood account, which he mentions later in the note, where he's getting free trades, he's wondering, you know, will that exciting new private company be coming public anytime soon? So, is there a resource Andy Cross, that you use or that we use that you'd recommend to listeners, a helpful way to track private companies. So, Brett, first of all, congratulations. Not only do you have a cool last name, but congratulations Wham. on just getting started with investing um, and uh, with, with the rule breaker style. Fantastic, especially with someone who's who's in your age bracket. You have many, many years of investing ahead of you and, and long-term patient business focus, innovative investing is the way to go. So, just wanted to say that. Congratulations, on that, Brett. Second of all, the IPO market, David, has shifted and improved so dramatically over the 20 years that I've been investing along, 22 years now, last week, investing alongside you here at The Motley Fool. Uh, and there's a lot more information. Historically, it used to be very difficult for individual investors to invest in IPOs. And when we say IPOs, by the way, initial public offering for those who are not used to that acronym, uh, it is for pub- private companies that are issuing stock into the public markets. When a new stock, common stock, is born, something you and I can buy on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. That's exactly right. And, IPOs. And over the years, uh, we, we've invested in many, many, many IPOs that have gone on to produce great returns for uh, public market investors. And some bad ones, too. I've occasionally- And some bad Oh, I certainly know, have, too, too, David. Too early and hard on Great Wolf Resorts. I remember that one. But keep going, Andy. The market is now so much better for finding information. I talked to Aaron Bush, who's an analyst with us here at The Motley Fool, a fantastic analyst and researcher, and he pointed me to a few resources that I want to share with Brett. So, the first one is clickipo.com, mobile-first, friendly application that helps regular individual investors not just learn about IPOs and businesses that are that are setting up for an initial public offering, uh-huh. But actually invest in them, which t- because their application, their online app, ties directly into many brokerage accounts. Hmm. It's really fascinating. So in that in that application, you can sign up for it free. Um, you can find out about companies that are preparing in the registration process to go public, and you can track the information that Brett may be looking for. Now, full disclosure, I have not used it, and uh, so I can't comment on how simple it is to actually use, but the process seems very elegant, and the application is very cool at clickipo.com. And they actually, it's free to buy shares, David, and to buy, to buy um, shares in the offering if you can get them. And it's not guaranteed you can, but if you can get them, 
them, and the underwriter of the stock actually pays Click IPO for the service. Hmm. So that's one service that I would certainly suggest Brett check out is ClickIPO.com. And by the way, I will just say, Brett, you don't have to invest in IPOs. There are plenty of fantastically great businesses out there in the public markets that are already public because IPO investing does come with its risks. That's right, Andy. And in fact, I've never personally bought an IPO. That is, I've never been invested in a private company that came public. Uh, The only stocks I've ever owned or recommended in our services were companies that were already public. Now, some of them were recently public, so you'd say, you know, that was a recent IPO. But none of us here at The Motley Fool, for the most part of our services, are giving advice to people to get them into stocks that are going to IPO. And we are, yes, David, we are not, because um, even in today's market, uh, it's not guaranteed that you can get shares. It's a little bit still opaque when you buy. You don't tend to, even on click IPO, you don't buy shares. You actually put in a dollar amount. And they try to allocate accordingly, and there are restrictions and eligibility requirements. And in the once a stock goes public, there's a lot of things that affects that stock price over the course of a year, including lockup periods from insiders. Yeah. So it's a little bit tricky. And I'm not for for a beginner investor like Brett. I'm not. I personally wouldn't necessarily recommend something along those those lines um, for an, for a starting investor because. You can invest in so many great, innovative companies that are already in the public market. That's right. Andy, you know, I think about here in 2018, remember this IPO? Spotify. Yes. I mean, it's a big, well-known company. A lot of people excited about it. Uh, it came out, came public. Stock did pretty well initially. It rose, even though this is still a company not making money, but it is a global brand and a big-time business. But these days, months and months later now, it's right back to about the price where it IPO'd. It kind of sold off. And that often happens with these IPOs. They get hyped up. People get excited about them the first few weeks of the first month or first day. That's right. But six months later, a lot of times they're just kind of back to where they were. That's true, and so I, 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 um, I think the advice I would give to anyone who is looking to get into IPOs, while this Click IPO, and there's other th- Renaissance Capital, Aaron pointing me to, and Strictly VC, other services that provide a lot of information about IPOs and a lot of um, insights and education on the businesses, but. Really, uh, investing in public businesses that are um, run by visionary founders that are providing services that are unique in the marketplace and growing exceptionally and have lots of market opportunity ahead of them, um, you you might avoid some of the um, vol- even more volatile nature that will come with IPO. So generally, I think, Brett, fantastic that you're getting invested. Don't feel like you have to go invest in IPOs. Uh, you might not even be able to because of some of the el- eligibility requirements. Um, but generally, uh, you don't have to do it because of the um, great businesses that are already in the public markets today. All right. And Andy, I think we're out of time for this one. Did, were there any other resources that you have to check out private companies or anything else no, you want to mention? No, I'll there? just quickly, I'll mention so Renaissance Capital at Renaissance Capital and Strictly VC, which is actually a newsletter published uh, for free, a daily newsletter published by the Silicon Valley editor of TechCrunch, provides a lot of insights just on companies that are um, looking to go public and uh, uh, information on those businesses and and the details behind some of their offerings. Um, and Renaissance Capital actually has an That's an has, excellent site that I've used. Yeah, before, it actually yeah. actually has an ET and they actually have an IPO ETF for companies that have that have come public recently. Um, everybody's got an ETF. Yeah, it's, true, it's true, including the Mountain. All Fool, the cool so. kids are doing it. Yeah. So I would say Renaissance Capital provides a lot of insights on just the market in general. Wham. All right, before rule breaker mailbag item number five. Thanks to Harry's for supporting Rule Breaker Investing. Based on my personal experience with Harry's, when compared with other shavers, the glide and comfort are amazing. And that's right, I am a Harry's and a happy Harry's customer. I'm sure that many fools out there can say the same, and those who haven't tried, I think will be convinced. And with that being said, we have a special offer for our listeners. It's a practical gift he'll actually use, and it'll save him money on blade refills. You can personalize it to make him feel special and choose a color that's right for him. Now, with limited edition holiday handles. Now, each Harry's shaving set comes with an ergonomic weighted handle with an option to engrave. German-engineered five-blade cartridges that provide a close, comfortable shave. Foaming shave gel for a rich lather. Travel cover to protect your blade. A handsome holiday gift box. Or just want something for yourself? Redeem a Harry's trial offer to experience the quality of shave before committing. That's right. Free shipping ends from Harry's on December 12th. So act now. Go to harrys.com fool to get $5 off a shave set while supplies last. That's harrys.com fool. 
harrys.com slash fool. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number five. This one comes, oh my gosh, this one comes from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, my alma mater, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I don't know Jim Lewis, but Jim, I feel like I know you at least a little bit better now, and thanks for writing in. Jim Lewis wrote this, hey, I was subscribed to your inside value service for a short time, and through that service, invested in a company called InvestNet. That's with an E, InvestNet. The company's done well for me, greater than 100% return. Well, I'm really happy to hear that, but... Jim goes on, since you've discontinued that service, I don't get any updates on the stock. This leaves me feeling like I'm sailing without a rudder on this one. Is lack of updates a reason to sell a stock? Thanks. Enjoy the service. Signed, Jim Lewis, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Well, thank you again, Jim, for writing in. And Well, I thought I need to pull in my friend, Allie Wines, because Allie oversees our U.S. membership business. So, if you're a member of a service that's in the United States, for example, Stock Advisor, Rule Breakers, well, Allie is the person who's really making sure I hope that you're well served. So, Allie, I just shared Jim's thoughts. What are your thoughts back? Well, hi, David, and thanks for having me on. Um, first of all, thanks, Jim, and I am a UVA grad myself. So I'd forgotten I that, Allie. I didn't realize <laughs> so, that you know, we're at loggerheads now. So, despite the fact that you're from Chapel Hill, um, I still would like you to have wonderful <laughs> member service with us. Um, and you're right, InvestNet was an active pick in Inside Value, which we closed earlier this year. Um, and when the team uh, closed that service, uh, what they did was they put together a final report. And I don't know if you caught it or not, but I went back and I looked at it, and I actually saw that they had a list of companies that they thought people should consider selling. And InvestNet was one of those. And what they said about those was, um, this is, these are companies whose prospects were less excited about. So, if you are thinking about selling any of your inside value holdings, this could be one you might consider hmm. selling. So, there's that angle. The other piece is, yes, it's not an active pick among our services, and we wouldn't want you to feel rudderless. Um, we do think, I don't know if you necessarily agree, David, but based on your risk tolerance and kind of the profile of the company, it's maybe worth checking on any of your holdings at least once a year. So, I agree with that. That sounds that sounds good. Right. Um, so, given those factors, um, I did a little digging for you, Jim, just in terms of what your options might be here. And so, I, I, I looked you up, and I saw that you're still an active member of both Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers. Um, and then I talked to my friend Abby Mallon, who's on our investing team, and asked her, "Okay, so Jim loved this stock. It gives him exposure to fintech." Um, do we have any active recommendations in those services um, that might kind of scratch that itch for him? And actually, it turns out that David, on your side of the scorecard, you have three picks that she felt might uh, serve that need. Um, so one of them is Nasdaq, mm. which is actually a Best Buy now of yours right now. Yep. So that's one that he could consider. Um, you also have. CME Group, mm -hmm. which was a pick from November 2017. And then a final one I'll throw out there is the Chicago Board Options Exchange Group. Yep, CBOE. An CBOE. So another David pick. Um, that one's a pick for back from January 2014, but it's been a Best Buy now as recently as November 2017. So even a year ago, you still liked that one. So I don't know if David, you you thought of these three that I pulled out of my grab bag might be like an interesting thing for Jim to consider that we could keep him up to date on. I love it. I'll just say that I favor all three of those companies. What I like about Nasdaq and CME Chicago Mercantile Exchange and CBOE is that each of them basically is a market platform. Right, you're buying stocks over the Nasdaq, you're trading options over these platforms, and the companies that sponsor them and run them are really great long-term plays, in my opinion, because it's very hard to compete. If you want to show up and be a new options exchange, there's a big dog that already exists there. It would be hard to replace the NASDAQ, for example, as well. So, I favor all of those. Funny enough, I don't know InvestNet. I'm really glad, Allie, that you took the time to do some research and tapped Abby for that. So, I think that's great. And I think what we're telling you, Jim, is we're reminding you that the few times we do close services, which we never like to do, the only reason we ever close the service is if not enough people are using it and we're misallocating our own research efforts. So, Inside Value is a wonderful service that we're all very proud of. It just didn't have as many members. And so, as we closed it down, we said we're going to give you a write up and a perspective on all of the stocks in the service. And I'm glad that we did that, Allie. I hope Jim's 
saw that, and anybody who may have had inside value would have had that same experience. And you've just pointed out there are a lot of other stocks and other services besides. And so maybe it's time to cash that winner, investnet, and reallocate. And those are three perfectly good ideas. Great. Thanks, David. And yeah, for Who's and Tar Heels alike, there are great stocks out there. And so, and again, I'm just happy that you found another home with The Fool. We're always here to make sure that our members are in great services. So, Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers, you really couldn't beat that. So, thank you, Allie. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Jim, for the question. All right. Rule Breaker mailbag items number six and seven. We're going to combine two here because we're about to talk about, oh, my golly, is David Kretzman in the studio? Oh, yes. We're about to talk about the Gardner-Kretzmann Continuum. GKC, baby. It, it is one of the most important investment developments of 2018. I think we've talked about that previously on this podcast. Any regular listener knows what the Gardner-Kretzmann Continuum is, but I'm sure we have some new listeners this week. So, David, before I read these mailbag items, can you just briefly summarize the GKC? So, all you got to do is take the number of stocks that you own. So, if for example's sake, let's say you own 50 stocks divided by your age. Let's say you're 25. 50 divided by 25, your GKC score is 2. Which is a huge number. I think most people don't realize that they could own that number of stocks, or they might think it's crazy to own 50 stocks at the age of 25. Although, David, I think you have maybe even a higher ratio. I think it's over 70, so I'd say my ratio is probably closer to 3. And I think the agreement that we've come to over the course of the year discussing after creating the GKC score, David, (laughs) is that we want your GKC score to probably be at least 1 or higher. So, just a rough barometer to follow as an investor. Love it. So, that's a quick introduction. And now, Mailbag items number six and seven. This first one comes from Jeff Brown. Jeff writes, Greetings. I've enjoyed the RBI podcast along with most of the other Motley Fool podcasts for the last few years since I started listening to podcasts. I have a long commute, Jeff writes, and they help me pass the time in an informing and amusing way. My one complaint is that I no longer listen to as many audiobooks as I did before podcasts. Hmm. Yeah, kind of makes sense to me. There's only so much time, right? Yeah. All right. I was temporarily relieved to hear about the GKC, Jeff goes on, as I'd thought myself as a hoarder of companies. Best type of hoarder to be, at least. He says, I'm turning 53 this month. I figured I probably had investments in about that many companies. I hadn't counted them in a long time, as my portfolio just grew enough not to worry so much about diversification. I was a bit surprised, though, to count. 76 different companies, plus about 15 funds. Most of these were wrecks from Hidden Gems, Stock Advisor, and Rule Breakers. I still think I have a bit of a hoarding issue, as I love buying into new companies, then benefiting from their growth and getting a bit of a kick out of telling my family, hey, we own such and such company when we come in contact with a product or a service that one of them provides. My question is related to adding to winners. I would like to get your thoughts on two common guides mentioned by The Motley Fool and how these relate. Adding to winners and buying in thirds. So, we're going to get to that in a sec. That's one question. And then also to the GKC, mailbag item number seven, P.D. Ewing coming back, pointing out we may have mispronounced P.D.'s name previously. We do make a big effort, David, to nail people's pronunciations. We try very hard, but we don't always get it right. It was spelled P-E-D-E-E. You went with? Pidee, I think. Right. But I think We've received this mailbag item, and I think PD is pointing out it's just pronounced PD. Yep. So that's what we're going with this month. But here's the question PD starts, thanks for your wisdom and caring for your truly improving the lives of your fellow man. Well, that's a wonderful thing to hear. And thank you very much, PD. I'm curious as to the ideal size of a position. I'm on track, PD writes, to have my GKC index at one with 27 different. Stock advisors, starter stocks, and new picks. Once I reach this goal, each position will only be one or a few shares for each of those 27. As I add more new picks, what's an ideal approach to position size, etc.? So, these both of these questions about the GKC. David Kretzman, illuminate. Well, this this isn't the, the best, clearest answer, but I'd say it really does depend on your situation. I would say these two listeners writing in, it sounds like they're at a stage of their lives, certainly in PD's case, where they have years in front of them to invest. They'll most likely be adding new capital to the, the, the amount of cash that they're adding to stocks. And I also want to say that Jeff Brown, who was our first guy there, is 53. 
And I sure hope, since I'm going to be turning 53 this coming year, that he also has years and years absolutely. to invest. Absolutely. Yeah, decades to invest. <laughs> so so we're optimistic here. And absolutely, we, we, we're talking here about people who will be adding uh, new money to their investments for years to come. And I think in that situation, position sizing today isn't quite as important because if you have new money to add, you know, you can start a smaller position, follow the company and add to it over time. If you're someone who's closer to retirement or you're dealing with more a fixed amount of dollars, you're not necessarily going to be adding new cash to that, then you probably do want to think more about okay, I'm going to stick with a specific number of stocks. I'm I'm going to target an allocation whether it's 2 to 5% or 8% for each each position. But yeah, in this case, especially if you're starting out and just adding, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month or every couple of weeks, whether you're trying to save up to to invest a bigger amount in one stock or investing a little bit over one or two or three stocks, I probably lean closer to the latter category. Mm-hmm. Where obviously with my GKC score above three, like I must be leaning that direction. But if there's a stock that I like. I'll typically just start a small position, and it'll probably be less than 0.05% of my portfolio. So, a very small percentage of my portfolio in relative You're just getting terms. in the game, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah, and I think getting some skin in the game, following along. And then there will be companies where I've probably added to them 10-plus times over the past 18 to 24 months. That's great. And then there will be some companies where I buy them once, and then it's like, ah, you know, I'll just leave that. <laughs> Not necessarily going to return to it. So, it's really going to depend on... Each investor's circumstances, your risk tolerances. I know, uh, David, in your case, you've recommended some companies like Intuitive Surgical, I think, six times. You've recommended others three plus times. So we're not necessarily saying you can only buy to only buy in thirds. You don't necessarily need to only buy a company three times. But again, it really does come down to each person's circumstances, their risk tolerance. And I'd say it's good for an investor to reflect on the volatility that we've gone through in the stock market this year. I know I personally have seen some of my bigger positions in my portfolio drop 30 or 50% over the course of the year. A lot of that happening within the past month or two. Yeah, I feel you. Yeah, so reflect on that and think, okay, how comfortable are you with a bigger position in portfolio dropping like that? Do you wince? Do you lose sleep at night? If so, you probably want to aim for a slightly smaller position size for any given stock in your portfolio. But on the other hand, if you're someone who has a stock that's 10 or 15% of your portfolio, it drops by 30% and you don't flinch, then you're probably someone who can tolerate a bigger position size. So again, it really is a range for each person. Well put. And David, you're in your mid-20s. Talk to me about 2019 if you're just guessing. So, from your GKC of approximately three, we'll just say you have around 75 companies in your portfolio. With the money that you save next year, how much of that money will go toward existing positions? And then, how many new stocks do you see yourself buying? I realize we're just kind of making it up, but just give us a general guide for how a guy with an extremely high GKC thinks about investing in the year ahead. I'd say I'm increasingly prioritizing adding to existing positions. So the majority of the cash that I have available to invest will go toward stocks I already own. Uh-huh. So in this case, let's say probably 60% plus okay. of cash next year that I have to invest will go to positions that I already own. Next year will be an interesting year. We have a lot of exciting IPOs on the docket, potentially Uber, Airbnb, Slack, a lot of higher profile IPOs coming in 2019, similar to what we've seen in 2018. So It'll be interesting to see some new companies hitting the public markets. Uh, but yeah, in any case, I, I would say the majority of the new cash that I do have available to invest, I prioritize stocks I already own, but then you know, we'll leave a little bit on the side to start positions in companies that have stri- struck my fancy and maybe, hopefully, we'll add to down the road as well. Awesome. So, there you go. Mailbag items number six and seven on the GKC. It's really kind of a story of portfolio crafting. And there's no one size fits all cookie cutter answer to how to build a portfolio. A lot of it does come down to key factors like your age and your enthusiasm, and then how much money you have coming in. Once you do math around those, and then you just kind of ask, what am I working toward? What does my portfolio look like 10 years from now? Do I want to be tracking dozens of stocks? Do I like to spread my money out that much, or do I want to focus some? And even the answer that you have today may change 10 years from now. You may have something different in your mind at that point. So it's all about evolving and adapting as we go. And that's what we're here to help with here at Rule Breaker Investing. Rule Breaker mailbag item number eight. And oh my golly, is that Emily Flippin here joining us in the studio? <laughs> Hi, Emily. 
Hi, how are you? So you're here because I want to talk about Chinese ADRs with yes. number nine. But since you're here, I wanted to share this whimsical question with both of you. Whimsical might not even be the right word. In fact, Patrick in Canada, Patrick Hoffman, who's writing us, is using the word ethical. So we'll talk maybe a little bit about ethics. Who knows where we're headed with this one? But let's start it off. So he says, ethical question from an aspiring investor. As an aspiring investor, Patrick writes, I'm wrestling with ethical questions I'm hoping you could shed light on. It appears to me that the whole concept of the stock market is based on one principle. Patrick says that this part of a company that I'm buying today will be worth more later than it is now. But isn't this idea, he goes on, based on a fallacy of infinite growth? It's impossible for a company to continually grow forever. My concern is that in this unending pursuit of growth, are companies not encouraged and rewarded for doing whatever it takes to increase profits, including, maybe, pushing ethical boundaries? Might be a silly question, one I'm seriously wrestling with, though. Patrick in Canada. Now, David and Emily, I'm really interested in both of your perspectives. All I'm going to add in is this from Hamlet, because how can I read the phrase infinite growth and not think of, alas, poor Yorick? I knew him, Horatio, a fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. He hath borne me on his back a thousand times, and now how abhorred in my imagination it is. And it goes on from there. One of the most famous scenes of all of Shakespeare, of course, we're the Molly Fool, so we're going to have this Shakespeare vibe going through this podcast as we have in the past. But a fellow of infinite jest, as Hamlet holds a skull, and was kind of the court jester of his time when Hamlet was a little kid. And now all he has is just York's skull that he discovers with the gravedigger, a fellow of infinite jest. So, a market of infinite growth. Emily. I, I like to believe that some companies are capable of infinite growth, just because I want them to be capable. I think Amazon is a great example of mm. that. But when you look at a company like Amazon, it's hard not to ignore the ethical issues that Amazon has had. So, while I don't believe that any one company can grow infinitely forever, I do think that the market rewards companies that grow ethically. And so, companies that are more and more taking an ethical manner to the way that they do business, to the way that they grow, I think, especially as you know, we get further and further into the 21st century, those are going to be the companies that are rewarded. And as an investor, I often think that I'll miss out on amazing growth opportunities because I don't invest in companies that I don't see operating sustainably and ethically. But I think as an investor, you have to make that choice yourself. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting to hear Jeff Bezos talk about this because Amazon at one point crossed that one trillion dollar market cap hurdle and still one of the biggest companies in the world. Although the market cap has dropped a bit recently, I've noticed. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, a little bit painful, but he really said, you know, the, the bigger institutions, whether it's governments or companies, they should invite more scrutiny. Whether it's from the public, from uh, regulatory agencies, from consumers. All these different stakeholders, as organizations, or in this case, companies get bigger, they will invite more scrutiny. And I think they will be held to a higher standard, whether it's by their customers, their employees, regulators, whatever it might be. So, companies, I agree with Emily, will, especially in this day where you have social media and so much more insight into these companies through the internet and through that connectivity, companies will need to increasingly operate in an ethical way if they want to survive, let alone grow, over the long term. And I think there, there's also just a beauty built into capitalism where I think theoretically every company would love to be the one dominant company in the world that does everything, but there's just that built-in mechanism of competition among companies. Like If you go back to 1980 and look at the top 10 biggest companies in the Dow, the biggest companies in the world, I don't think any of those companies are in the top 10 today. You have mm. companies like IBM, AT&T, ExxonMobil, which is still a bigger company, but then you have Schlumberger, Shell Oil, Mobil. You really just had a bunch of energy companies <laughs> that were the biggest companies in 1980. And really, the, the top 10 companies in the Dow or any index actually don't typically have a great track record over the long run. Once they establish that huge size, right? Right. it's just harder to grow those things. And we'll see, maybe that changes with the dynamics of the internet and with software, where you don't necessarily need to build more physical infrastructure or more drills or whatever it might be, physical assets to expand, where instead you can just sell more software or sell more ads. It's a much more scalable and bigger business model. Uh, so it's 
it's an appropriate conversation, probably best for, you know, 2 a.m. discussion in a dorm room or something, <laughs> maybe with the assistance of some other substances uh, to really get, get the, the most out of this. But I think there is some built-in competition there that limits the ability for any one or two or three companies to really reach that, that pinnacle of being one of the biggest companies. I agree, and I think history proves that. And it's, I'm delighted that you brought history into it, David. I, I will say, just for my own part, that last week's podcast with Paul Rice joining us, Improving Business Through Fair Trade, Paul is talking about how capitalism is changing as we speak. And in a way, I do think it's becoming more and more ethical, thanks to people like Paul and many others that realize that the best way to grow as Emily just said, is to grow ethically. Because when you do so, people want more of that. If a company is growing unethically, I think that's increasingly unsustainable in this world. I think we all want better from business. We're asking business. We ask a lot of business. We're asking entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos to do almost everything. Keep growing, keep innovating, and do everything well. And by the way, don't make any mistakes or you'll get flamed on social media. Right. So, it's really quite remarkable what we are asking of some of these great public companies of today. But yeah, so, Patrick, I hope that was helpful. I hope we helped you think through it a little bit. Infinite growth, I will say, in closing on that, that a lot of times people think that you shouldn't hold stocks for a long period of time because it can't keep growing forever. And they'll point out how lots of companies aren't around anymore. But what they neglect to mention is some of those companies that disappeared over the course of time were simply bought by another company. Some great companies like Marvel, for me, was a great stock. Uh, it no longer shows as a stock. It would look like Marvel disappeared if you're looking backward. But all that happened is, as we all know, is that Disney bought Marvel. So, the infinite growth doesn't need to be infinite. We all have finite lives, but some of these companies can be held quite a long time. And, uh, and sometimes when they disappear, it's not because they went bankrupt. It's because they got snapped up at a premium. All right, three more Rule Breaker mailbag items on this rule-breaking, all-time record-setting episode. But before we get there... Thanks to Slack for supporting Rule Breaker Investing. Slack is a collaboration hub for work whatever work you do. With Slack, the right people on your team are kept in the loop, and the information they need is always at their fingertips. Teamwork on Slack happens in channels, letting you organize conversations and information around projects, offices, and teams. And because everything you need to work on is in one place, it's faster and easier to get things done. And in fact, Emily, you and I were corresponding via Slack to set up your appearance on this week's Rule Breaker Investing podcast. Every day. Use it every day. Pretty much. So, it's really a great way to throw up a quick team and get something done, or just have a long, ongoing team project that might last years all through a Slack channel. And with Slack, your team is better connected. You can find out more at slack.com. Now, as I mentioned, we've used Slack here at The Motley Fool literally for years. I'm going to say five or so years, maybe more than that. Slack saves time and improves the Motley Fool's productivity. No more searching through emails for that one follow-up or searching through multiple systems to find what you're looking for. Nope, no more switching across multiple tabs and platforms to keep updated with work. Slack works everywhere you go with mobile apps for iOS and Android that sync seamlessly. You can always pick up where you left off no matter where you are. Slack, where work happens. Learn more at slack.com. That's slack, S-L-A-C-K.com. All right, Emily. So now for something completely different. Christopher Olson writing in. I can't say enough good things about what you guys and gals do to fulfill your mission at The Motley Fool, but I'll spare that for the time being and pose my question. Christopher, by the way, is at look from down here without an O on Twitter, at look from down DWN here. Thank you for writing in, Chris. He says, I've owned a few Chinese companies, Emily, for over six months now, Rule Breaker Rex. I've had a few small charges to my brokerage, citing something about the ADR. This has been for Ichi'e and Baidu. I do also own Baozun and JD, but can't recall if I've had charges for those as well. Just curious if this is the broker charging me or who's getting this money and why. The charge comes out of my cash in the brokerage account. Thanks. And fool on. Well, Emily, it was natural for me to turn to you because you know China a lot better than I do, having lived uh, four years of your college in Shanghai. Yes, 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 four years. Yeah. And while I don't think either of us purports to be a specialist on ADRs or charges, I hope you've done a little bit of homework, or maybe you already knew this. Do we have an answer for Chris? We do. Um, yeah, I definitely would not say I'm an expert, but I think I know more than the average investor about investing in ADRs. So, if I have a short answer and a long answer. Well, let's start with the acronym American yes. Depository Receipt. ADR. So, American Depository Receipt is 
essentially a slip of paper that you're going to buy from your broker that says, I own X number of shares of a foreign company. Now, this is where the fee comes into play, because by owning this piece of paper, you don't necessarily own the stocks of the company. You own a piece of paper that says you own the stocks of a company. Okay. And for all intensive purposes, you own the shares of the company. But what actually is happening is whenever these foreign companies come to the U.S. and list on the U.S. exchanges, they have to use a depository trust company. And this is the person who's going to be owning the shares and then issuing the ADRs, or the global depository receipts if you're international. Okay. And they sell those to your broker, who then sells them to you. I'd never known how that worked. I have owned ADRs in the past, but yeah, okay. (laughs) Um, And actually what happened, the reason why you're seeing these fees, and there are fees that we don't typically talk about, because they're very, very small fees. They usually range between one penny to three pennies. Um, per share of the stock. But okay. if you own 500 shares of a stock and it's you know two cents a share, you're paying $10 a year in these fees. So, it's definitely worth mentioning um, that your broker is not getting this money. This is getting paid to that AD, or DTC, the Depository Trust Company, okay. that the ADR is using as the listing company. Um, so, it's essentially a pass. They're called ADR pass-through fees, which is coming to you from this kind of system in which it's a complicated way of you owning the shares. And what's really interesting is that you can actually pull up the documents and see about how these are how these are changed because they're not the same for every company. You'll notice that you'll get a fee for each different company that you mm. own, and it might be one cent on one company, three cents on another company. In the case of Bowsoon's example, it's five cents, so a okay. little bit more expensive there. Um, you can actually go into the SEC's website. They have a search process called Edgar. You can search for your company, pull up the F6 agreement. This is the listing agreement for the ADR. And if you search through a lot of legalese, it's no fun, I promise (laughs) you, but I do promise also that it's there. Um, You can search through and you can find the agreement that they made with the bank. So I think I pulled up Baidu here. I think a lot of people own Baidu, so it's a great example. If you go through and search their F6 form, you'll see that they actually have an agreement with the Bank of New York, who is the person who's working as their custodian for this. And their agreement is that they can charge two cents per ADR at the end of the year. Bowsoon's five cents per ADR at any point, at any one point they choose throughout the year. So it's different for every company. Long story short, it's a legal process that was recently changed in 2008 that allows them to take a little bit percent shares of any ADR that you own. Very well researched, and thank you, Emily. Very thorough. Long, complicated story, but it's you know what we like to share this. Story. It was very well done, and you know, Bowsen's trading about thirty-four dollars a share, so five cents on each. I mean, this is this is really inconsequential for the most part. But Christopher was. I wouldn't say he was troubled, but I would say he was curious. He's wondering, exactly. what is that money and where is it going? And you just helped him understand. You helped me understand, too. Well, I too. hope so. If there's any other questions, Christopher, feel free to reach out. <laughs> awesome. Emily Flippin, thank you. Thank you. All right, coming down the home stretch, and it's time for a question about Motley Fool Funds. And when I think about Motley Fool Funds, I think about my good friend Denise Corsi, head of Motley Fool Asset Management. And oh my golly, look, Denise, you're here in the studio with us. I am. I'm so excited. And is this the first time that we've interacted live on this podcast? Yes. And yet, any regular listener will instantly recognize your voice, Denise, because mm-hmm. you have been the lead-in for the podcast since week one in July of 2015. I have. So, I mean, I, I think I have to ask you to do it live, if you would. Denise, could you do that? I would love to. I don't know if I can do it quite as well as that first time. but Well, we do tape it and take the best one. But, okay, I mean, this great. is raw, though. This is real. This is yes. gritty. Yes. Okay, here we go. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Wow, that was wonderful. After three plus years, we've never had you do that live. You know, back in the day, do you remember You've Got Mail? Do you remember America Online? Any old hands remember AOL? And Elwood Edwards was the guy who said, you've got mail. And we had Elwood Edwards on our radio show back in the day. And since we occasionally do radio blasts from the past, maybe we want to bring Elwood back. But we thought we have to have this guy on our show to interview him about the You've Got Mail thing. So, anyway, Denise, that was wonderful. Now, pushing all that aside, we have something much more serious and much more important to talk about, which is Motley Fool Funds. But... Speaking of serious and important, you have something to say first. I do. So, um, I'm going to try and beat uh, Brian Hinman, who was on here, to read this disclaimer. So, here we go. Here comes the epic disclaimer from Denise Corsi. (laughs) 
Motley Fool Asset Management is a separate sister company of the Motley Fool LLC that manages the Motley Fool 100 ETF. I'm not recommending that you buy, sell, or hold any of the companies that I discussed, nor am I advocating an investment strategy for any of you as individuals. You can find our fund's entire holdings on the mfamfunds.com website. These lists are updated daily, but keep in mind that the current holdings are subject to change at any time. All investing, including ETF investing, involves risk and possible loss of principal. For listeners who are not shareholders of the fund, you should consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, and expenses carefully before investing. The prospectus with this and other information is available on the mfamfunds.com website. Please read the prospectus carefully before investing. In addition to normal risks associated with investing in equity securities, investments in the fund are subject to the risks specific to ETFs. Unlike other funds managed by MFAM, the fund is not actively managed. As with all index funds, the performance of the fund and its index may differ from each other for a variety of reasons, and the fund may not be fully invested in the securities of the index at all times, or may hold securities that are not included in the index. Finally, fund shares may trade at a material discount to NAV, and the risk is heightened in times of market volatility. To the extent the fund invests more heavily in particular sectors, its performance will be especially sensitive to developments that significantly affect those sectors. The fund is non-diversified, which means that it may invest a high percentage of its assets in a limited number of securities, and as a result, gains or loss in a single stock may have a greater impact on the fund. For these and other reasons, there is no guarantee the fund will achieve its stated objective. For more information on the Fool 100 ETF, please visit fool100etf.com. That was really well done. And I was going to say to my producer, Rick, we should just speed it up to keep it moving. But that was not sped up. That was Denise herself able to talk about as fast as that. Remember the, who did the FedEx ads? John, somebody, hey, fast, amazing. Yes. You said you were practicing some this afternoon? Yes, I was practicing this a lot. So my actual answer to the question might not be nearly as good. <laughs> <laughs> well, but. it's important that we say that. And that's what enables us to have you on. So, Denise, thank you so much for your time and your contributions to this podcast. Travis Tunstill wrote a simple note to us for this week's mailbag. He basically said, if I bought the Motley Fool Fool 100 ETF at age 40, I know you talk about owning one stock for each year of your age. This goes back to the gardner Kratzman continuum from earlier. But Travis is asking, might this be a faster way to jumpstart that process by just putting his money into the ticker symbol is TMFC? And he says, thoughts. And I thought, well, here are my thoughts. First of all, I can't necessarily have thoughts because this is a regulated side of our business. And so I'm not here to promote or demote. We're just here to share information. But then my second thought was, let's have Denise on along with our very talented lawyer, Mary Henderson, who always sits on the other side of the glass anytime we do this, because she'll throw the flag if we do anything wrong here. So, yes. now that we've stripped the curtain away and you see how this podcast works, Denise, what do you think of Travis's question? How do you approach a question like that? Um, well, I would say the short answer is yes, because math. Um, the full 100 ETF, which uh, ticker symbol um, TMFC, owns, wait for it, 100 stocks, mm. um, and 100 is greater than 40. So, um, but of course, there's a there's a little bit more nuance to that answer. Um, uh, first, I guess for for listeners who aren't familiar with TMFC, which is the ticker, um, uh, just a short overview: the Full 100 ETF is uh, Motley Fool Asset Management's first uh, ETF. It launched back in January uh, of this year. Of this year, I still get excited when I say that. So, mm-hmm. um, and it it uh, tracks the Full 100 index. Um, which contains the top 100 U.S. companies by market cap in the full one, full universe. So that means any of the companies that uh, have are active buy recommendations, um, and any of the full newsletters, or are ranked among the top 100, uh, top 150 um, in the full IQ. Right from our analysts who all contribute their opinions about which stocks they favor the most, and that's a system we have here at the full called Full IQ. Yes. Yes. So, so you're right. Travis basically by buying the fund would have a hundred investments, and if he's forty, he ends up with a two and a half ratio, one hundred divided by forty. But it is just a single investment, right? So, yes. in, looked at another way, um, even when you own the Vanguard Index Fund and you own all of the stocks in the world, that's still just one investment. It can do well or poorly, and it doesn't necessarily constitute comprehensive diversity. That's correct. For one, it is um, it's U.S. stocks only. It's large cap, um, and uh, it is uh, you know as the fool itself is uh, tends to um, be very consumer um, discretionary focused and technology focused. The 
the index reflects that. So you're getting some very heavy sector weighting in certain areas. So there's that. And it is a single investment. So you get to watch one, st- one stock go up and down on your, uh, uh, in your portfolio as right. opposed to that sort of continuum of the individual ones that you pick out. And I like the witticism that I think is inherent in the ticker symbol, right? TMFC, because C, if I remember my Roman numerals aright, yes. that's 100, right? Yes, TMFC. it is. C. Yes. Now, this is not the only ETF that your team has launched in 2018? No, we actually just launched an, an ETF at the end of October. It's um, the Motley Fool Small Cap Growth ETF, ticker symbol MFMS. So uh, it is uh, it is actually an actively managed ETF. So it's going to be a little bit more concentrated. Uh, have between thirty and forty stocks that are um, hand selected by our team of analysts in uh, in Motley Fool Asset Management. So I haven't looked, and we're not even talking about performance about these funds. Anybody could look it up. Yes, but was the team psyched to be launching it right as the market started caving in because they're getting better prices? Or was this sad because the market caved in right after we launched the fund? Oh, they were. uh, Charlie Travers is the portfolio manager, and he was psyched that the market was going down. It started going down a few weeks before we launched, and he was Mm. very excited about that. Uh, As someone who was responsible for sort of getting people excited about buying this, uh, it was that was a little bit uh, nerve wracking, right? I understand, <laughs> but, but we've had um, a lot of interest in, and we've been very happy with the the growth of the of both the portfolio and the uh, interest in terms of people investing in it uh, in the last three weeks. Wonderful. So. Well, I hope everything that we do is built to last. Yeah. Uh, Denise, any previews of 2019 attractions for Molly Full Asset Management? Anything else you want to say before you get whisked off the stage? Oh, um, well, I can't really preview for next year just yet, but we do have certainly um, different uh, strategies and um, uh, products that we're thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say just uh, check us out at mfamfunds.com. We do have a new web site. So that's um, pretty exciting. So a little bit uh, more modern and uh, uh, different branding. So um, and a little more uh, focus on it, focus on our products. Understood. Well, thank you, Denise, for sharing that. And, you know, part of the reason we started Motley Fool Asset Management was the number one reason when people would call and say, I want to cancel a Motley Fool service, they would say, I don't have time. I may like you guys, I may even love you guys, but I'm canceling this or that Motley Fool service just because I, I can't keep up with it all. And so we started thinking, hmm, is there a business opportunity here? Could we launch asset management where people who feel like they don't have time or have heard about the Motley Fool name are trusted, but just don't want to invest directly in stocks with us? Would they have a solution too? And Denise, you and your team have done an outstanding job creating those solutions for our members. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. And it's uh, we're, we're happy to be doing it. <laughs> I always try to save the best for last when it comes to our mailbags. Certainly, our mailbag episodes are among our longer episodes. It's just because I love your questions and we love going. I'm bringing my guest stars. It's not just me sitting at the mic lonely talking to himself, which is how this podcast is most of the weeks of the month. Nope. This is when I get to bring in my guest stars. And arguably, sometimes we have too much fun. But part of that fun is that with Paul Harvey, I like inspirational stories to end with. And so, Mailbag item number 11 from Dr. Yair Levy, a neuroradiology fellow. And Dr. Levy wrote this, Dear David, I wanted to share with you and your audience how becoming a full investor via Stock Advisor and Rule Breaker Services, an avid Rule Breaker Investing podcast listener, affected not only my wealth, but other aspects of life. I'll share two examples, Dr. Levy says. First, discussing conscious capitalism helped me to frame in a coherent way what I already believed in. And before I go on with point number two, I felt the same way, Dr. Levy. When I first came across Conscious Capitalism, Whole Foods founder John Mackey came to our offices and gave a free talk to our employees about it. And afterward, my brother Tom and I had lunch with John. He said, hey, you guys should come to my conference. This is 10 years ago now. And we did. We went to our first Conscious Capitalism Summit. And what I said to everybody in attendance, and it's a wonderful crowd, I said, wow, This is like my tribe. I didn't know that you were all already here. And part of what I appreciate about conscious capitalism is it gave additional language to thoughts that I'd intuitively been operating with as an investment advisor for low these many years. So I totally get you with point number one, Dr. Levy, that discussing conscious capitalism helps one to frame in a coherent way what one may have already believed in. And then point number two, Dr. Levy says, becoming a lifelong fool and rule breaker, three years ago, my wife had a very lucrative retainer with a startup company, allowing her to spend little time on work, making a high five-figure salary, allowing her to spend time with our kids, who at the time were two and now are four. 
That was a golden cage, Dr. Levy writes. Everyone around us told her that she can't leave that job, even if she didn't like it. At the time, I started listening to Rule Breaker podcasts that changed the way I, a very cautious, risk-averse person, was thinking, leaning towards a more contrarian approach. Long story short, my wife quit her job and launched her online business, offering thousands of parents from 45 countries around the world, and counting, peaceful parenting courses. Three years in, her business is employing four stay-home moms and is by far more successful financially. Goal is seven figures for next year than her old job, but even more important, she enjoys it. So thank you, David, for sharing your foolish wisdom and enhancing the quality of life for so many people. Fool on, and please keep reminding us how to behave when the bears are roaming the streets. Best, Dr. Yair Levy. All right, and that ends this week's epic mailbag. Next week, it's going to be my holiday games list podcast. That's right. I'm going to recommend some of my favorite games from the last year or two, card games and board games, because A, I love games, and B, once or twice a year, I like to focus a podcast on that, and I'm very excited to announce that I have an interviewee with me next week, and that's Richard Garfield, the designer, for those who know it, of Magic the Gathering, the collectible card game. Really, somebody who jump-started an entire industry of card games. Richard Garfield, certainly one of my heroes, is a game designer, one of the best living game designers. So he'll be joining with me in a special Rule Breaker Investing podcast next week. It's our Holiday Games List 2018 podcast. In the meantime, have a great start to your December. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.